0: But here's what I know, whether it's, it's someone has been married over 60 years or someone has been married 10 months or, or even less, there's not a, a perfect marriage in the room. I'm thinking if you thought your marriage was perfect, you wouldn't be here. I mean, there, there, people that think they have it all together usually don't come to events like this. And so I think we all are on the same page uh, when we understand that, that because two sinners said I do... Um, After they say, I do, they still sin, and conflict happens, and perfection is just not a reality. I had you discuss at your tables um, the silly fights, Uh, and and, and that's kind of a difficult question because some of you are comfortable talking about those things and some aren't, but maybe some of that talk circulated around the table a little bit, and we can laugh about those things. We're going to talk about that in just a moment, but um, honestly, fighting is probably not how your relationship first began. I hope it wasn't. Um, most of you, when, when you first met, and I had you talk about that too, you were in a stage that, that was not love. You thought it was, you felt like it was, and I did too, but it was actually called infatuation. I know that because they've actually done medical research about this. They, they took a couple who were in the infatuation stage of marriage, and they ran their brain through an MRI machine as they were looking at the person they were infatuated with. And the research and the picture showed that the frontal lobe of their brain, that's the part of the brain that is responsible for the reasoning and the logic and all of that, it decreased greatly in activity whenever they were looking at that picture. But there were three other parts of the brains that lit up like a Christmas tree. And it's the same three parts of the cocaine addict's brain that light up whenever they're getting a high. So you thought you were in love and I thought we were in love, but we were really just stoned. <laughs> Honestly, we talked like it, we acted like it, and it's the truth. I'm going to show you a picture of when I was stoned over Jenny Lee at that time. O'Brien, oh, this is the day, I don't know who those two kids are, but this is the day that I told her I loved her for the very first time. That, that's the day, that's the place. We were underneath the willow tree and uh, we were in Lubbock, Texas, and I had asked her dad earlier, That day, if I could tell her that I loved her, and so I I took her to this nearby park, and and we went to the basketball court first because we had kind of a love and basketball relationship, you know? And and so I took her, and we played a game of horse, and and I let her win. Now, you know I was stoned if I let her win. (laughs) That tells you my frontal lobe wasn't working right. Um, So I let her win, and, and then we go under the willow tree, and I told her that I loved her. And, and, and it, was an, it was an awesome thing that neither one of us will, will ever forget, but both of us felt like we knew what that meant then. And we've come to find out we didn't. We didn't even have an idea of what, it, of what real love was. We were seriously just infatuated with one another. And, and it's fun to go back and reminisce and look at those pictures and laugh about and share with other couples how we first met but there's not a couple in here who stayed in the infatuation stage forever. Because something happens called marriage. And in marriage, you become a roommate with another sinner whose breath stinks in the morning just like yours. And you begin to understand personality quirks. And don't think that just because you get married, things get worse. That's not the point at all. But reality sinks in. And you begin to learn some nuances with the person you're married with that maybe your frontal lobe wasn't able to reason out when you were in the dating stage. And as a result of this, there are some disagreements. As a result of this, there, there are some arguments. And I'm going to say the word fight a lot. We understand I'm not condoning physical abuse in any way. And some of you might, that, that word might turn you off. But, but, but I'm going to say it tonight, that, that we end up fighting. And, and early on, most of the time, it's not really over serious things. It's over silly things. In, in fact, I've discovered that, that, that new married couples tell me this a lot. It's a common complaint. They say, we fight about the dumbest things. Whether it be who's turning us to take the dog out, or, or who's going to get up and feed the baby, or in my case, who's going to close the garage. I say that because as Jenny and I began to think earlier this week about silly fights we've had, we both went back to this time whenever we thought about me not closing the garage. Our first two houses did not have a garage. I didn't have to build that habit early on in marriage. And so we moved to 1440 South Grant nearly 10 years ago. It had a garage and I just occasionally, or maybe more than occasionally, forgot to close the garage. And she put up with it for a while, and she closed it herself, but then she just couldn't put, it up, put up with it any longer, and she came and addressed it with me. And I'm telling you, we had a knockout, dragout fight. We did everything but throw punches about me not closing the garage. And, and, and now that we are released from that conflict both of us sat down and talked, and and this was quite some time ago, but we sat down and talked recently about it, and we both came to the conclusion that our fight wasn't really about closing the garage. We came to find out that closing the garage and our, our conflict over that was actually a symptom of a much deeper problem, which gives us the bigger idea of the lesson tonight, and write it down on your handout. Silly fights cause serious damage because there's usually something deeper going on. Silly fights cause serious damage because there's usually something deeper going on. I've got to call a timeout in the lesson, and and I've got to meet what might be an inner objection of some listening to this conflict or fighting language that I'm giving tonight, because in your heart, you might be one of those couples that even publicly say, we've never fought. I'm not sure I believe that one, Number two, our definition of fight might be different. Number three, if you never fought, that means you never confront. It's not something to hang your hat on. It means that you are fighting more for your spouse's happiness than their holiness. And God instituted marriage to make us more holy, not make us more happy. If we become more holy, we become more happy, not vice versa. And so, if you're like, "Well, it doesn't apply because we don't fight," you need to go a little bit deeper than that and ask yourself: I know you might have chemistry. I know you might truly get along, but I wonder if you've swept things under the rug, and you've just got used to living with that, or, or, or living with that personality quirk, or living with that weakness, or living with that selfishness, or living with that stubbornness. Silly fights cause serious damage because there's usually something deeper going on. So. When you get into a fight that seems silly on the surface, like closing a garage door, ask yourself this question, what are we really fighting about? It's in your handout. What is the tension really all about? Now, there's a book that, that I read a portion of to help me with this lesson, and it's entitled, How to Improve Your Marriage Without Talking About It. Now, that title appealed to me. I, mean, I don't have to have any hard conversation. I'm in. It's a secular book that honestly got all kinds of buzz on morning shows. Dr. Phil, um, Oprah, The, the author of the book actually makes some great points and says that behind all conflict in marriage, there's a chase of fear and shame. A chase of fear and shame. She says when we fight, the chase of fear and shame is actually what we're really fighting about. So follow this. According to her book, she says a woman's core vulnerability... Her Achilles heel, the thing that's extra sensitive in her life is when she feels fearful. Fearful about the relationship, fearful about the future, fearful about the children, fearful about finances, etc. That's when she gets upset. That's the emotion going on within her. It's fear. For men, she said, it's shame. Our core vulnerability is when we feel shamed, when we feel inadequate, when we feel like we're not doing something good enough and we're not measuring up. Here, here's how this looks in conflict I'm gonna show you this fear and shame cycle. When a wife fears or feels fearful, here's what happens she acts in a way that shames her husband. Then he acts in a way that makes her feel fearful then she acts in a way that makes him feel shameful. And around and around we go, and it creates a cycle that I'm going to refer to tonight as the negative chase. The negative chase. You see, for men, we know that shame is our thing. We want to be good at what we do. For ladies, you want to feel secure. You want to feel like your husband will choose you every time. Now listen, when that gets messed up for either of us, that is what is at the heart of what we're really arguing about. That's the deeper issue. You might say, okay, that's a secular book. You're going to, in order to get me to buy in, I need to hear it from the Word of God. Well, Paul speaks to to it when he talks about marriage in Ephesians chapter 5 in verse 21. Look at it on the screen. He says this in the context of marriage. Submit yourself one to another in the fear of God. Now, what does that mean? It means that a good marriage is based on mutual submission. Write that down. Right beside Ephesians 5:21, the word mutual. Mutual submission. You know what that, what that sounds like in marriage? It sounds like this: you first. No, sweetheart, you first. No, babe, you first. No, really, you first. No. You first. That's mutual submission. But, but, but submission looks different for the husband than it does the wife. Most of the time when we talk about submission in the context of marriage, we automatically think that only applies to the wife. That's all we talk about. But he just said in verse 21 that we are both to submit to one another. So the husband submits differently than the wife, but they both submit one to another. What does it mean for the wife? Look at the screen at verses 22 through 24. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Write this down. The wife demonstrates submission to her husband by respecting him. That's what it looks like. That's what mutual submission. That's her part of that agreement. Now look at verse 25. It's different for the husband. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Here's the husband's end of the deal. You demonstrate submission to your wife by loving her. So the wife's end of the deal is respect. The husband's is love. Now I want to go back to the negative chase for just a second. So often in our conflict, the wife feels fear, and the man feels shame, and it's a negative chase. And it makes sense now when we look at just the opposite in Ephesians 5, because fear, write this down, fear is the opposite of feeling unconditionally loved, while shame is the opposite of feeling unconditionally respected. Now, for the flip side, I see some of y'all flipping around on these. Don't worry about that yet, okay? You don't need to know any of that yet. We'll get there. Stay focused on this for just a second. We'll get there in just, just a minute. Fear is the opposite of feeling unconditionally loved. Shame is the opposite of feeling unconditionally respected. Now, follow me. What we think is just a silly fight is actually revealing something more serious something deeper going on, and if we really want to get to the heart of it, here it is. There's not love and respect in the relationship. There's fear and shame. We are caught in this negative chase, this arguing back and forth. And God is making the point through the Apostle Paul that we aren't made to live within a marriage based on fear and shame. At least happily. We are made to live happily within a marriage that is based on love and respect. Mutual submission. And when we get this right, marriage is awesome. But when we get it wrong, marriage is awful. So I want to dig a little bit deeper in application. And I want to ask this question. What causes this negative chase to be so common in marriages? Why do we find ourselves caught in this vicious cycle of fear and shame? Let me go back to our little silly fight about the garage door. Jenny and I were caught in this cycle. For some reason, me not... Well, I know the reason. I'll tell you in a little bit. Me not closing the garage door made her fear, feel fearful. When she came and addressed it to me, well, she, she didn't address it. I had to pull out of her. She came and she, she was totally withdrawn. And I asked her, I said, is, is something wrong? And she said, no, I'm fine. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) No, let's, let's talk about it. Something really wrong. Nothing. Code word for something big is going on. And so I began to dig a little deeper. And she said, I've asked you at least 500 times to close the garage door. And you still don't close it. It's like what's important to me is not important to you. And she said this. You don't even care about protecting us. So now I've got to be the protector of our house. And so when she said that, I said, babe, you are so right. (laughs) I don't care about you. I made a mistake. Would you for, no, I didn't say that at all. I got defensive. And I said, I am a great protector of this home. I've got a nine millimeter in the closet, and if I could figure out how to load it, I would use it. <laughs> That's a true story. I actually know how to load it. Brady taught me, it just hurts my thumb. <laughs> Honestly, seriously. I'm just not gonna work it, work my thumb to get couch, not into it. I can protect this home. So I just have a butter knife in my drawer. That's all I got. Thinking about getting a ninja star, maybe. (laughs) What I realized, after thinking about that, for us to fight that intensely about something so silly, there's got to be more going on than just me not clicking that button. Well, to help us get to the heart of my fight and yours, help us discover what might be causing the negative chase like we entered into that night, I want to ask two questions. Now turn your sheet over. We'll come back to the fill in the blank here in a moment. If you could in your mind, would you go back to maybe the last argument or disagreement or fight or conflict you had? And if not, maybe just generally think about those seasons in your marriage. Okay? And I want you to ask this question first. What is your typical negative response in the middle of conflict? And there's a list and there's also a list on your handout List on the screen and a list on your handout. The words could be exaggeration. I've told you 500 times. <laughs> defensiveness, blaming, fix it mode, destructive behavior, complaint, anger, shut down, indifference, sarcasm. As I read through these words and my wife read through these words, here's the word I chose for me defensiveness. I use my words to fight. Now, I'm going to be very, very honest with you in some ways more than I'm comfortable with, but I think is going to be helpful for the lesson. That's what I tend to do. I tend to become a defense attorney and power up. My wife is just the opposite. She powers down. And so her word is shut down and withdraw. She doesn't yell. She doesn't raise her voice. She hates to argue. She'll cry, and then she'll be done, especially when I power up. What's yours? What is your typical response in a fight? Choose from that list of words and circle it, would you? If you're not circling a word, then continue to polish your halo. <laughs> the rest of us will seek counsel from you at the photo booth after the lesson. After you circle that word, here's the second question. How does it make me feel? In other words... In the middle of conflict, when my spouse gives me that negative response, how do I generally feel? Here's a list of words. It could be rejected, abandoned, disconnected, helpless, unimportant, inadequate, like a failure, don't measure up, unloved, unaccepted. You could add a word if you needed to. As I looked at that list of words, I circled basically three words, inadequate, like a failure. And don't measure up. And I put a big circle around inadequate. What I felt in the fight about the garage door was that she didn't think I was a good protector. That's what I heard. I heard that you're a lousy husband. I heard that you don't care about protecting our family. I heard you're not measuring up. That's what I heard. That's what I felt. Virginia, as she looked at that list of words, she circled the words unloved and unimportant because closing the garage door, it was deeper than that to her. It was something that was important to her, but that I didn't choose to make important to me. Thus, I'm not, she's not important to me. It was something that made her feel secure, and she hates feeling fearful like most women do. And so that made her feel unloved. I don't love her enough to get out of bed and go close the garage, or at least remember to close it when I come home from the office. How did your last fight make you feel? How do most of your fights make you feel? Circle a word. Now we're going to fill in how we go about the chase. The graph I showed you earlier showed fear and shame. We're going to write in our feelings and our responses, both yours and your spouse's. So you need to work together, okay, and don't fight right now over it, okay? Work together, and I want you to fill out the negative chase part of your handout. What his negative response is, her feeling, her negative response, his feeling. You just look at the words you circled and fill it in accordingly, and then I will show you uh, what it looked like for Jenny and I. You don't get an answer for your spouse, by the way. I understand that this probably isn't particularly comfortable or easy for some, but that's OK. We're going somewhere. I think it's going to be very, very helpful with this. We got it. Let me show you what Jenny's eyes saw. you can see ours. Our negative responses were to get defensive and withdraw. Our negative feelings were inadequate and unloved. So that's what our our graphic would look like right there, our cycle, the negative chase would look like. Um, If I did something that made her feel fearful, um, she would feel unloved, and then she would withdraw, and eventually I'd pull it out of her, and she would say something that made me feel inadequate, and then I would get defensive. And when I got defensive, I would put her back into a feeling of being unloved which then would cause her to withdraw. And when she withdrew, I was like, oh, now you don't want to talk? And then make me get defensive. And when I finally pulled it out of her, she didn't have anything nice to say. And so I got defensive again. And it's this crazy negative chase. I hope I'm not the only, we're not the only couple that have been caught in the cycle of a negative chase. Now consider this, would you? Even though we were fighting about something seemingly silly, The garage door. It wasn't the real issue. It wasn't what we were fighting about. Jenny was fighting about feeling unloved. And I was fighting about feeling inadequate. And my feeling of being inadequate led me to fight with defensiveness and her feeling of being unloved led her to fight with being withdrawn. Which then made me get more defensive and and the negative chase begun. But here's the thing. Watch. The silly fights cause serious damage. Because there's usually something deeper going on. And here's where it's tragic. Most couples will not get any deeper than the garage door. And you'll always fight over garage door stuff And you'll never enter into the deeper issues. And what you're doing is you are cleaning your hands of a conflict for today. But next week, you're going to get into it again. And by not getting into the deeper issues of your conflict, you're actually doing great damage to your relationship. You feel like you're doing good damage because you clean it up that day. We're done. We're good, right? We're going to kiss. We're going to make up. We're going to go to work the next day. We're going to forget about it until five days later. And we continue to fight over garage door issues and we never think deeper than that. So how do we change it? How do we reverse the negative chase into a positive chase? And even better, how do we prevent the negative chase from ever getting started? Two ways. Number one, and flip your your chart back over for a moment. Number one, realize that the feeling in your heart indicates a lie written on your heart. i got to be honest with you. Before I prepared for this lesson, I've never thought this deeply into our conflict, ever. In fact, if someone were to stand before me, especially in a setting like this, one-on-one would be easier. But in a setting like this, if someone were to stand before me, I would almost internally roll my eyes. Because I would think, dude, you are, you are going Dr. Phil on us. You're going way too deep. This is silly. It was a garage door. I'm just going to start... Closing the garage door and it's all done. The problem with that is the garage door turns into another silly issue. Which turns into another silly issue when I figure that one out. Which turns into another silly issue. I'm forced to think deeper if I want to solve the deeper problem. And so if you're like thinking, whoa, whoa, this is all crazy, just follow this, would you? I felt inadequate when she told me I didn't want to protect my family. But it's really not true. I want to protect my family. Like if a dude walked into my house unannounced, I seriously would. I probably wouldn't be able to load my gun, but I would do something. <laughs> seriously, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't just start crying and go into the fetal position, right? I mean, I, I love her. She's truly important to me. That, that, that's not true that, I, that I'm not a good protector. And, and, and when she felt unloved because I wouldn't close the door, gr- it's not true. I'm crazy about her. Like when I told her I loved her under the willow tree, I thought I knew what that meant. Now I get a better idea of what real love is. And I know beyond a shadow of a doubt I love that woman, and truly she knows that I love her. So there's a lie written on our hearts that triggers a negative response. You might think this, my spouse always seems to bring out the worst in me. And it's not true. Your spouse reveals the brokenness inside of you. Your spouse hits upon a lie written on your heart. And then I've got to dig deeper and I've got to ask, then where does the lie come from? It, it, where did it originate? I begin to think of myself, why do I get defensive? What causes me to feel inadequate when she says things like that? What, what, where did that start? And this is where I will be very honest with you, and I'm going to read most of it because I, I want to include every detail. Here's how I answer the question. After thinking through the, the, the deeper level issues, I, I've realized that I fear failure. More specifically, I fear that people think I'm a failure, which is even a deeper issue than just fearing failure. So i to beginning, why do I struggle with that? It's not just my personality. It's not just pride. It goes deeper than that. And then I started ruling things out. It really has nothing to do with the way I was raised. Genuinely, like my parents supplied my every need and a lot of my wants. My dad never verbally, physically, emotionally, in any way abused me, nor did my mom. They supported me. I know that's not the story for everybody in here, but it's my story. And, and, and so I'm getting, what, what, why do I feel this? And I, I went back to my childhood, and, and my mind went back to something I think wrote a lie on my heart. And it might sound silly to you, and I'm truly okay with that. I grew up with a big brother that that was a better athlete than me, more outgoing than me, more popular than me, better looking than me, taller than me, stronger than me, much better shaped than me. We shared a best friend who is the exact same way. Neither one of them on a consistent basis or intentionally outside of just big brother stuff made me feel stupid, excluded me from the weekend activities. Neither one of them did that. But both of them unintentionally made me feel like the third best on the basketball team, third best with the girls, third best at school, until I finally found something that I was better than both of them at. And it was music. And I suddenly started building my sense of worth around my ability to sing. I had worked my butt off to earn first place medals at summer camp in singing. It was the only thing that proved to myself that I wasn't a failure. In my daily life, internally, I, I, I wasn't a depressed kid, but I always felt like I didn't measure up in my physique. I was chubby. It's a failure in my sports. At times, I I just wasn't quite as fast and tall as the two best players. And Luke and TJ always got in the game a lot sooner than I did. Even though that was something that was so many years ago and I'm okay, I didn't lose sleep when I was a kid about it. I didn't even know I was thinking or feeling those things. I found that I took that fear with me into marriage. And, And so for my wife to say I'm not a good protector... And that I don't want to keep her and Kevin safe triggers something deeper in my heart. It triggers a lie that I chose to believe as a kid that I'm inadequate. And anytime I start to feel inadequate on the inside or or, or anytime somebody even, even to this day unintentionally makes me feel that way, I respond with defensiveness. Because I hate that feeling. And I will do whatever I have to because I'm persuasive and I have have a keen ability and a sharp tongue. I'm good with my words. I will do whatever I have to and say whatever I have to to prove that I'm not a failure. That was the lie written on my heart. So then I went home and me and Jenny sat down at a table and we began to talk. And why would a closed garage door, a garage door that wasn't closed, caused her to feel something as deep as not being loved? Where did that lie get written on her heart? How did it get written on her heart? And we came to this conclusion that I wrote it on her heart. Because early in marriage, 13 years ago, ministry was a lot more important to me than her. Hobbies like golf and basketball were so much more important to me than her. My my drive to build a youth department was so much more important to me than her. This has nothing to do with throwing shade on my parents, but I didn't figure out real quick and real easily that my first loyalty is to my wife, not my, my parents anymore. And unintentionally, there were times in which I made her feel like I was more loyal to them than more loyal to her. And I wrote that lie early on because it wasn't a one-time thing. It was two and three and four and five and six years of this nonsense. Every time she'd bring it up, I'd get defensive and she would shut down and I felt, felt like I won the argument. Clean my hands, we're off. We settled another garage door argument. Little did I know that I wrote a lie on her heart. So when something silly happens, like I forget to close the garage garage door, it triggers the same feeling in her heart, and activates that lie I wrote on her heart 13 years ago, which says this, I'm just not important to Tyler. Doesn't love me enough to protect me. It made her feel the same way I made her feel the first six or seven years of our marriage. And so we would argue for an hour. Go in the negative chase cycle. We would wear each other out and give up. Can I talk to you for a second? You won't reverse the negative chase into a positive chase until you're willing to go there in your heart. Until you're willing to reveal the deeper issue of the heart. Why do you feel that way? Why do you respond that way? What lie has been written on your heart that triggers responses and feelings like that? And where did it come from? When did it happen? Your spouse needs to know that, and you need to know that. You need to know that to understand yourself, and you need to own that to understand your spouse. Then, after you come to that conclusion, watch here, you have to, number two, remember what is true about you according to God. I'm gonna bring this all together in a moment. You have to remember what's true about you, not according to your spouse. But according to God, because we try to get our worth from our spouse many times, we have to get our identity from God. We have to believe what he says about us. Now, my truth might be different than the truth that you need to cover up that perceived lie on your heart. But here's what we have in common. We get our truth from the same place. There's 66 books to pick from. A lot of verses to pick from. Because I often feel like a failure, and that's the lie written on my heart, and I fear that. To help me, I claim Psalms 139.14, which says, I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. That's the truth about me according to my God. Watch here. My worth and my value is to be taken from what God thinks about me, not other people. Whether I succeed or whether I feel does not change the way God feels about me. whether I measure up or don't measure up in people's eyes does not matter in the long run, because God made me like He made me on purpose, and my identity is in my heavenly Father. For Jenny, to help her with the feeling of being in love, she claims Romans 8:38 through 39. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the truth about Jenny according to God. Her sense of love and, and belonging and acceptance, watch, is to be taken from the unconditional, unfailing, eternal love of God through Christ Jesus. Not the conditional, unpredictable moody, and inconsistent love of her husband. And that doesn't justify me being any of the above. Now, how does remembering the truth according to God reverse the chase? (laughs) Write this down. The negative chase focuses on a perceived lie. Ours was, I'm inadequate. I'm unloved. The positive chase focuses on an internal truth. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. I'm Loved unconditionally by God. Now watch here. When you remember the truth about yourself according to God, it enables you to choose a positive response. Not a negative response based on a negative feeling. A positive response based on an internal truth. Now turn your piece of paper back over and look at the positive chase. What would a positive response be based on your truth? You might not know your truth right now. You might know the, the Bible good enough to be able to write the verse right in there, the biblical principle under his truth or her truth. I would encourage you to do that at some point tonight. But I gave you a list of positive responses. So when I put his, posit, when I put his truth in, would you put ours up there so they can see? Fearfully and wonderfully made is my truth, which then triggers a positive response of non-defensive. Unconditionally loved by God is her truth, which triggers a positive response of stay connected. Her negative response was to withdraw. Her positive response can be stay connected. Mine was get defensive. Obviously, it's going to be not to get defensive. I want you to pick what positive response would be, and I want you to fill that in the blank. Would you do that, please? I want you to work together with your spouse, his positive response, her truth, her positive response, his truth. If you can't figure out your truth right now, that's okay. You can at least figure out your response based on that list. What should your response be? Now, I want to bring this to light in two ways. I want to show you how filling that in can help you to reverse the negative chase to a positive chase by using our silly fight. Here it goes. This is how you reverse the negative chase into a positive chase. I don't close the garage. She has to close it. A negative feeling has been triggered in her heart. If he really loved me and if I were important to him, he would listen to what I wanted him to do and he would take time to close the garage and he wouldn't forget it. So she comes back into the room after closing the garage and she's obviously withdrawn. She feels unloved. And now she chooses to withdraw. Her negative feeling has triggered a negative response. I ask her, is everything okay? She answers, I'm fine. She's really not fine. I ask her what's going on. She's being clearly disconnected. She says nothing. And then she finally says, after I bring it out of her, I've asked you 500 times to do this and how it makes it feel not important to you. I guess I'll just just be the protector of our son. At this point, watch. The negative feeling of being inadequate is running rampant on my heart. The lie that has been written on my heart has been activated and accelerated and all I'm hearing is this. You're a terrible husband. You never get anything right. You're weak. You're not a protector. I have a choice to make. The negative chase has begun. I can reverse it or I can continue in it. If I believe the lie written on my heart, we will continue in the negative chase and I'll get defensive. But I can reverse it by number one, remembering the truth according to God that I'm fearfully, wonderfully made. And number two, remembering that Jenny's response of being withdrawn is based on a lie written in her heart that we've already discussed. You see why communication really helps us? And now I understand the lie written on her heart. I understand that I'm the one that wrote that on her heart. I understand the origin of it. And now seeing through that lens, I'm able to say something like this. Babe, I'm so sorry. I know that makes you feel unloved and unimportant. That's the last thing I want you to feel from me. I'll work harder at closing the garage. I just diffused her negative feelings and responses. I have reversed the negative chase and I have begun the positive chase. Now, you tell me, what are we inclined to do? Negative response based on a negative feeling, based on a lie written on our heart that we've never thought deep enough to address. Let me give you this situation. Because it's possible that we never have to allow the negative chase to get started. You know how we do that? I just close the garage door. (laughs) I get steeper than that because sometimes I just don't. I forget to close the garage door. Jenny feels frustrated, unloved, unimportant, and overlooked. But instead of withdrawing and disconnecting and coming to the room, laying down on the bed and looking the other way, she thinks, if I do that, I trigger my husband's feeling of inadequacy and his defensive response. So she thinks about a better approach in hopes of not getting the negative chase started. And she tries this. Hey, Tyler, just wanted you to know that the garage door is open. I went ahead and closed it, and I know you totally forgot about it, but it would sure mean a lot to me if you'd remember to do that. Notice she didn't sweep it under the rug. She hasn't learned to live with my selfishness. That's a bad trait, ladies. She's addressing it, but she's doing it in the right way. She's choosing to protect my heart. She's choosing to think through the lie written on my heart and take not an emotional approach, but but an approach of composure and concern. And she maximizes my potential as a husband to not get defensive. So I respond, I understand how that makes you feel. Sorry for that. I'll try my best not to let that happen again and the fight is over you know why it never began it could have very easily but because we chose the positive chase we escape the negative chase and here's the good part she reaches over after that short 10 second discussion and she gives me a kiss and then a lot of other positive things happen after she gives me a kiss (laughs) and that's the real positive chase That's the benefit of mutual submission. Somebody say amen. Amen. I'm thankful that 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 last conversation is how most of our conflict is now. I'm doing a better job at closing the garage door. I've learned not to be such a, a neglectful husband when it comes to that. And we aren't perfect, but my, 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 we sat across the table from each other, both of us in tears on Tuesday talking about the deeper parts of this and understanding that God has moved us so far and how we communicate with each other. And it's like now we don't try to fight to win. We, we fight to protect each other's hearts from the lies we know are written there. As I close, I want you to remember one more thing and write it down at the bottom of your sheet. The only part that you as an individual are responsible for are your two parts of the chase. Your truth and your response. That's it. Your truth and your response. Look up here. Don't worry about your spouse's response. Because the truth is, you might be in two different places right now. And if your spouse is frustrated, doesn't want anything to do with anything I've talked about, you can still do what you can do. If it's not your husband's personality to be a deep thinker, I hope God will get a hold of his heart. But until God does, you do you. And if your wife is stubborn and she, she does not want to be humble enough to admit her role in the negative chase, listen, men, you love her like Christ loved the church. And you pray that God will get a hold of her heart and she'll do her part. All you can do is choose your truth, which will then... Indicate what response you should have. You do not have to live in the negative chase. As kind as I can say it, stop it. Marriage doesn't have to be that fear, shame, fear, shame, fear, shame, fear, shame. Feel unloved, withdraw. Feel inadequate, get defensive. It doesn't have to, you don't have to live that way. That's not how you have to communicate to each other. You don't have to go to bed mad. You don't have to be estranged for four days. You don't have to live with weaknesses. You can address them in a Christ-like way and be in a positive chase. It's possible. I'm going to play one more testimony video of a couple that listened to a lesson a lot like this. I think it'll be a help.
1: We had just moved into a new house, and Anne had asked me to complete a couple pieces of paperwork.
2: You know, mortgage papers and all that good stuff that you have to turn in.
1: And I said, yeah, absolutely, I'll get it done. And so a few days later after she asked me this question to get it done, I came home from work.
2: And I asked him how his work day was, knowing in the back of my mind that I was gonna eventually get to the question of, did you get around to this paperwork? So I finally just asked him, hey, did you get the paperwork turned in? And he kind of avoided the question at first and then
1: eventually came and told me, well, um, not yet, but I'm going to. Like, I'm, it's, it's gonna be finished, I got it, I got, it's on my to-do list.
2: It frustrated me because I had asked him to do it in a certain time frame, and it didn't get done.
1: And that was not the answer she was looking for and I knew that immediately.
2: I automatically heard, I don't care about you. You're not priority. I have other things to take care of. And yeah, you don't really matter in this. All of those emotions really stem for me from fear, fear of being alone, fear of being abandoned or not cared for.
1: I just don't show my frustrations as much, but I'm internalizing them. And I'm starting to feel hurt, starting to feel disrespected. I just start feeling as if I am not enough. I don't have what it takes to be a great husband or one day be a great father. And I just feel a ton of shame um, on my shoulders.
2: We were supposed to go to a married event that night and uh, we were so frustrated with one another that we couldn't even get in the same car.
1: Ann leaves the house to go to the married event, and about 10 minutes later, she calls me and says, you need to get in the car and come. I'm not showing up to a married event by myself.
2: I walked in and found a seat towards the back.
1: And so I parked my car and I walk inside the church.
2: He happened to see where I was sitting, so he came and joined me.
1: But we didn't speak to each other, didn't even look at each other, didn't say hi. Um, And that's kind of how it was for the remainder of the night.
2: We were sitting in the event and uh, Ted was going through the content and invited his wife Nancy out to join him. And at that moment, I think I realized like, oh no, this isn't just for like husbands in the room. This is for like women too.
1: Immediately, I think when he um, gave his introductory sentence, I thought, great, this is exactly what I need to hear tonight and exactly what I don't wanna to hear tonight.
2: I'm immediately already thinking like, that was tailor made for us and like the Lord couldn't have spoken any clearly, like this is what we needed to hear.
1: So um, we get home, we walk in, I think there was about five minutes of silence when I first came in, cause I started thinking it's late, like this isn't the night to talk about it. Then finally, um, I decided, no, it is. And I said, hey, uh, I don't know what you thought of tonight, but I felt like it was exactly what I needed to hear, exactly what we needed to hear, and kind of exactly what we were going through. And I said, let's just talk about it. Uh, We had a great conversation. Uh, It was really, really late. um, But I started to think, wow, it's what we needed tonight.
2: Practically how it plays out for us in our house now is just instead of talking about maybe what's happening on the surface, really diving in and trying to figure out what's really happening below the surface. After hearing content of The Chase and going back through that, like even now thinking back through that season, um, like putting in the blank that Ted and Nancy kind of painted for us of like, like I am a child of God, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I think Like I know that of Matt, but in those moments of when we argue, I don't necessarily feel like I believed them for him and fought for him in that way. If I would have chosen to believe those things for him on his behalf and in his defense, like none of that probably would have ever happened.
0: silly fights cause serious damage, Uh, more serious damage than you think, because usually something deeper is always going on. So tonight I hope that you'll go home, and I hope just like that married couple, I hope that what I taught tonight, though I know it won't answer every question and, and fix every conflict and all of that, maybe it brought some things to the surface that you've never thought about. And maybe it'll at least be a bridge into a conversation about deeper things. My hope is that you won't fight over garage doors anymore. But you'll fight to protect the lie. Try to protect their heart because a lie's written on it. And I hope that, that you'll be honest with each other enough to think back and say, man, where did that come from? Why do I feel that way? Why do I act that way? And it'll inform every one of your future conflicts and how you handle it. You will now be fighting to protect their heart not win a fight. And there's, it's so different when you look at it that way. Thank you for coming tonight. I, I, hope, I know that this was, was a little bit heavy, but I, I think that it's a place we need to go every once in a while. And, and, and I, I want to pull you out of a negative chase into a positive chase.